Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Fritz and I are here to tell you what we've been reading and watching this week. Plus, we are thrilled to be welcoming Taylor Williamson, who'll be coming right up. But first, Fritz, what have you been watching? Well, I have two documentary films this week. Uh, uh, One is one that will be of larger appeal than the second one. So I'll do the larger appeal one first. It's Belushi. It's the story of John Belushi. It's on Showtime right now. They're rerunning it ad nauseum, as they always do. This is the life of maybe the most notorious of the original Saturday Night Live cast members. First of all, the format is great. There aren't a lot of talking heads. The key commentators, like his wife, Judy, Dan Aykroyd, Ivan Reitman, John Lennis, the other people in his life, are all done in voiceover. And it sounds like they did a lot of the interviews on the phone, which was just kind of an interesting, rough and raw concept. But Belushi was rough and raw, so it was perfect. What's fairly common about this film is it's the classic American story of overindulgence and self-destruction. Everybody knows the details from the endless news stories about the reports of his drug use when he died at the Chateau Marmont. The interesting insights for me... Uh, were this. First, how everybody knew he was destined to be a star from his earliest days with Second City. He had this energy and charisma, and, and they all admit that the moment he walked on the stage, he did what's called drawing focus. Everybody couldn't take their eyes off of him. And he immediately, after his audition, went to the Second City main stage shows, which doesn't happen very much either in Second City or the Groundlings, if you know anything about that process. It's like a boot camp process. He went right to the top. Another revelation was how in love with his wife, Judy, he was. How he relied on Judy for his sanity. His letters to Judy get read voiceover again in this. They're they're beautiful, poignant letters. It proved that they were soulmates, and he really reveals a vulnerable side. And the last interesting thing to me was the pressure he put on himself at the peak of his career. Remember, there was a confluence of events, the moment when Saturday Night Live was at its hottest, at its peak, while at the same time, Belushi was in the number one movie in the country, Animal House, and simultaneously, they had the number one album on the charts with the Blues Brothers. So as an artist, he put all of this self-imposed pressure on himself, and it was what drove his drug use and ultimately his death. But you, you come away wondering what you always wonder when somebody really talented dies early, where would they be if they were still alive? Would he be like a Marlon Brando character and one of our most lauded actors? Well, I have a question about the self-destruction and, and uh, what what people knew and what they chose to do or not to. Do you, do you think that when when someone is that famous and powerful and that that man of the moment, that they're more indulged and that people uh, are are more willing to give them everything they need but don't need in a way. I think way, that's part of it. I, I does think that it's, accelerate? It's part, of that nar- it's part of the narcissistic personality complex. When we're also intoxicated by fame, is does that accelerate the self destruction of someone Maybe. who really should be told no? Maybe I have another theory about it too, and that right. uh, that there's a certain damage to the soul of souls of many comedic performers, and deep in their heart of hearts, they truly believe they don't deserve the accolades they're getting. 
And so mm-hmm. it's a self-sabotage maneuver where all this money and all this fame and all this love, which is all I've really desired all of my life is coming at me and I don't know how to deal with it and I'm not sure I deserve it. I mean, I know people on a much lesser plane than John Belushi and people who I would never mention, but I've seen people go through that syndrome where the more they achieve, the more they want to knock the pins out from under themselves. And so it might be a little of both, Wheezy. It might be what you say and it might be... Uh, the other part of the theory. I don't know. It's complicated. It's a fairly typical story, though. They get to a certain point and they, their heads explode. So, well, And I'll secondly, I want to talk about Zappa. This is about Frank Zappa, of course, with the Mothers of Invention. This is on pay-per-view right now. Now, I met Frank a couple of times, wasn't close to him. We had mutual friends. I saw the Mothers of Invention perform at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia back in the 70s. It was a big place. Hendrix played there and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I wasn't a fan of his music. I didn't really get him. But I think he does have a place in our cultural landscape. He was pivotal in those big First Amendment arguments about the parental labels on records. You remember that? He testified in front of Congress. Al Gore's wife became the arbiter arbiter of everything that was uh, acceptable in the world. She decided to be the spokesperson for that. He went and countered that in this testimony before Congress. But Mainly what I came away with was his guts. I just sort of compare him to Andy Kaufman, where he was just a brave performer who wasn't trying to please you. He didn't really care if you liked him. He was doing it for his own edification. He was doing his art for its own sake. If you liked him, it even puzzled him more. Like when he had that hit Valley Girl with his daughter Moon Unit. It was the biggest hit of his life. It made both of them rich. And he never was able to figure that out. It was an accident. And it made him very uncomfortable. And so what you come away with, this is the last thing I'll say, is that you just... Whether you are a fan or not, you respect him as being a pure and brave artist in the truest sense of the word. And, you know, he was he was part of that landscape where the less you understood about an artist, the cooler it was. It was like when Bob Dylan came out, nobody understood most of his lyrics, and they thought that was cool. You know, they were giving people credit for being smarter than they were. So, Well, maybe there's fun in the interpretation. Yeah. And then there's some uh, co-ownership. It was you feel wacky. Like you, you know, you've decoded it, and so it's it's ours together. We share. I share this with the artist because I. Yeah, have this it may be, and he had credibility in the artistic community. I mean, he did an album with the London Symphony Orchestra. He had all this credibility of people who appreciated his artistry. But he really was a classical music composer. It was just kind of dissonant classical music, and uh, you know, uh, I I I was not a fan. I would listen, and I go, I I you know. I need something melodic, you know, that yeah. comes in three acts and comes back to the beginning. But <laughs> he was not that person. But he was certainly a brave artist and believed in himself. And if you came along for the ride, fine. If not, fine, too. Awesome. Well, I want to talk about two books into movies that I experienced this week. I had read the books, but then the films were uh, presented to me this week. And I, I really think they're important to talk about. So the first is uh, Between the World and Me by ta Coates. So this was oh, a yeah. book. And it's it, he writes... 
Well, all right. So this was first published in 2015 between the world and me is written in the form of a letter to Tanasi's 15 year old son who is approaching the brink of his adult life as a black man in America. The book recounts the author's inner city Baltimore childhood and his own awakening to the dangers faced by black bodies in America. He speaks of how bodies have been used as fuel to furnace American commerce, and the narrative explores Coates's bold notion that American society structurally supports and perpetuates white supremacy. The book reads as prose, and it was adapted into a 2018 staging at the Apollo Theater featuring Mahershala Ali, Angela Bassett, Courtney B. Vance, Oprah Winfrey, among other great talents. The HBO special combines elements of the Apollo production, incorporating documentary and archival footage and some beautiful animation. This is important reading and viewing for people who think they are white. And that's how he presents it in the book. He sees it all as a race as a construct. And uh, I'm going to read to you a quote from the book just so that you get a flavor for how ta writes, because it's brilliant. But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy. Difference in hue and hair is old, but the belief in the preeminence of hue and hair, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society and that they signify deeper attributes which are indelible. This is the new idea at the heart of these new people who have been brought up hopelessly, tragically, deceitfully to believe that they are white. And that's from ta Coates' Between the World and Me. Uh, that's that great. You, it's on HBO right now. They're yes, rerunning that a lot. It's, I, it's, I haven't seen it, but I can't wait to see it. It's really profound. And it's just, I think it's really important for white people to pay better attention to their own white privilege. Um, and then the next book into movie is Hillbilly Elegy, the book by J.D. Vance. Uh, J.D. Vance is a former Marine and Yale Law School graduate who in 2016 wrote a powerful account of growing up in a poor Rust Belt town, which offered an inside deep look at the working class white America whose grievance was believed by many to explain the election of Trump. J.D. Vance tells the true story of what a social, regional, and class decline feels like when you were born with it hung around your neck. J.D.'s grandparents joined a generational migration from the poverty of Kentucky's Appalachia to Middletown, Ohio. J.D.'s childhood is wounded by the dysfunction, poverty, violence, chaos, and substance abuse cycles that trail them from Kentucky. While the book explores the social and political histories, ideologies, and values informing the thoughts and behaviors of working class whites, Ron Howard's film focuses on a young man's struggle to build a stronger, healthier life for himself while navigating the constant pull of responsibility for his toxic family. It's on Netflix. So a lot of people are, are sort of complaining about the film and that it doesn't say enough, but really I think a film adaptation of a book by necessity, has to find a thread and a focus and a through line and tell that story. And so I, I felt that Ron Howard very effectively did that. I, uh, I, I agree with the criticisms. I read the book and I loved it. I thought it was the most personal and real reflection of the forgotten blue-collar Appalachian culture that was one of the main uh, bases for Trump's support system. Uh, the movie, to me, and I will say the acting was spectacular, uh, was about a dysfunctional family with drug abuse and uh, a kid who was able to resurrect himself out of it. And I thought that the movie was a lot more ordinary than the book was. The book, to me, was a great 
sociology study of that part of the United States that all of us who have been perplexed by the whole Trump phenomenon have been trying to figure out. So I, it was a good movie, beautifully acted. And if you saw at the end of the film, they had pictures of the actual people. The casting was so dead on with a look at these people. It was scary. Yeah. But but I felt uh, like Glenn Close got oh herself my to look God, more like, like his grandmother yep. than his actual grandmother. Yeah, looked. it's really worth seeing, but it's always the problem you have when you, you know, you cast a movie in your brain before it comes out, and then you're disappointed. Yeah, uh, it was a good movie, but not for the reasons the book was good. I I thought. Are you ready to welcome my good friend Taylor Williamson? Please? I'm really looking forward to talking to Taylor. I'm super excited about it. Uh, Taylor, if you Google him, is an American stand-up comic. Even if you don't Google him, he will remain an American stand-up comic and actor. He is known for finishing as the runner-up on the eighth season of America's Got Talent and as a semifinalist in Last Comic Standing. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, everybody. I, un <laughs> I unmuted myself. Did it work? Oh, yeah. yeah it worked. We can really hear you. I so, Taylor, as you Google yourself daily, do you notice the related searches for Taylor Williamson? You have to scroll down to the bottom of the page. They're super fun to read. And yours are um, Taylor Williamson wife, Taylor Williamson net worth, Taylor Williamson CrossFit, which you're going to need to explain. Um, these are things that people often Google, Taylor. I, I trust you. It's, um, I, I recognize that you just read my Wikipedia bio, which I, <laughs> I respect your research there. That you yep. <laughs> I, w I went deep. I love that yeah. you read the, the, what you know. You could just say, yeah, he was on America's Got Talent. You're like, Taylor Williamson, an American actor, comedian. <laughs> That's yeah. Adorable. Well, I don't want to. I mean, the the internet never lies, so that's I want to be accurate. And then Taylor Williamson and Heidi Instagram. So I guess that's a, a common search. You and Heidi Klum are have have been having a long torrid affair for what five years now? It's been a little bit. It's a little bit. Yeah. Something like, we say recently in this business. You guys know you get you did something cool in your career, and people are like how long ago? You just go. It was recently. Yeah. <laughs> it just happened. Yeah. So, but but you started out. Now I met you at the, at the improv. You were maybe seventeen or eighteen, and what I noticed uh, instantly about you was that you had this what it felt like to me this innate timing that a teenager doesn't usually have in stand up. And I I, think, I remember asking you if you played an instrument because I just couldn't understand how this was so natural to you. But tell us about how you went about developing your your style, your point of view. Um. Yeah, it's one of my favorite compliments I got. It's not really a compliment, but like I took it, it made my heart happy. Like I don't know why, but like that's like I'm not. I, mean, I love it. Made me thank you for saying. I'm not. I feel like I'm like hey, it wasn't a compliment. I like that you said that to me. It stands out to me that you said. Uh, you asked me randomly, do you play? Do you play piano? And I was like, what? And like you could tell that. And I was like, that's. It's very interesting to me how things can lead. Like playing, being forced to play piano against your will as a child can lead you to being. <laughs> But there uh, are rhythms. There are rhythms to comedy, and it takes a certain amount of courage when you're that new to it to take that pause. That's effective in terms of comedic stylings, and you had that, and that's what was so astounding to me. Oh, I love that. Thanks. Yeah. What What was your question? Just keep telling Just me how what, gonna, you went. How you, did it become so amazing? Yeah. Well, how did you How did you develop your point of view oh, and you become know, you, and become amazing? You watch people that are better than you'll ever be, and you just copy them. And then people go, "Stop doing that! You're copying somebody." And you go, "I don't know." <laughs> but I, I never copied jokes, but I copied like accidentally. Like I wanted to be like Mitch Hedberg, 
who then older people saw me. They're like, hey, you remind me of Stephen Wright. Then I was like, who's that? And then I looked him up and I was like, oh, he's amazing, you know? But I was inspired by people who were inspired by him, you know? And, and then I was inspired by him, of course. And then, uh, I don't know. I think a problem with starting early is I didn't know who I was yet before I started. So I was trying to be other people, I guess. And then I got accused of being my onstage character offstage by some older mean comedians. Like, you're still doing your character. I'm like, I don't, I don't know who I am. I'm just being me, you know? But I think eventually it kind of, my favorite compliment i get it again it's also not a compliment is you're the same same on stage as off stage i'm like i like that i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but i like that you have a thing that uh you can't learn by studying somebody else's act and that is a personality over and above your material when i like somebody it's what i feel about them between the jokes i mean do they have a compelling personality and you're so uh interesting and warm and approachable and vulnerable on stage stephen wright's a good way to describe you. it you just want to hug stephen wright and then <laughs> suck whatever's in his brain out and put it in your own brain but uh you're really good at that and i i honestly Thank don't you. think that can be taught yeah, you need enough trauma as a child that you can't teach that, you know? That's so a good question. Are you in the camp of people that that's believes... That's supposed to be funny. I know. Well, I want to ask you... No, I want to ask you. Is that... Are you of the school of thought that in order to be an effective comedian, you have to have been severely traumatized as a child? Or is it just a gift that you were given by divine intervention that gives you a quirky look at life? Do you have to be uh, coming from a dark place to be good at that? I don't think... I don't, I think both are, I think there's no right or wrong answer. I think factually being bullied or being from poverty or being a uh, minority or being, uh, what else is there? That's whatever. You know what I mean? Like having things against you in life leads to finding, using humor as a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. So like, I think there's people who are organically, this is dangerous to say out loud. But like Seinfeld argues, I'm just funny. I had a great childhood. But I think he's more scientific funny, which is super yes. awesome. Yes. And I've talked to people who know him, who open for him. I'm like, is he really funny offstage? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, listen, he's not listening. He's not, I'm not recording this. And, I, and if he's watching, I'm not saying he's not I think he's brilliant. He is brilliant. He's maybe even more brilliant because it's not, <laughs> he wasn't, he didn't have divorced parents who didn't give him enough attention and stuff, you know? Like, right. he's a scientist on stage, but I think some people are just natural. They walk on stage, you're laughing already, you know? So I think some people have like the superpower. Like, here's my analogy. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Yes. Seinfeld's like yes. Batman. He's not a superhero. He just has, he took karate and really, and he has a bunch of weapons, you know? I know Batman's <laughs> parents got murdered, so that kind of defeats my. <laughs> but I'm saying it's like Batman versus like, uh, I haven't thought this through, honestly. But it's like, like uh, Magneto, he like was born a mutant, you know? Mm -hmm. And he went Yeah, you're saying like Seinfeld was never bit by a spider. Seinfeld was he a just, bit by a spider. I mean, he just, he has, he's a he rich guy with the weapons. He has a really cool car. Yeah. <laughs> and he works really hard at and he, being and able to he uses, And he uses it to take people to get coffee. Yeah. So. Exactly. He's doing yeah. a lot with what he's got, you know. So I think it helps to be, have like funny in your bones if you 
grow up at, developing as a defense mechanism or whatever, trying to make people smile or make yourself smile, whatever. Yeah, but I think it. I think that it it does count for something to be a really good technician and to have studied it and to and to have crafted an art and and that Seinfeld is is brilliant at at that and I think it maybe requires a little bit of both even the people who are naturally funny have to craft something they can't just go on stage and wing it right it goes back to your original thought you guys which is that there's a musical quality to stand up yeah and so you have to compose it like a song and Seinfeld always said that writing effective stand-up is shaving syllables which is one of the greatest explanations of writing stand-up I've ever heard. It really is. He is a technician. I agree. And if he's listening or watching, I think he's great. I don't need this to be the Taylor Hayes Seinfeld hour. <laughs> no, no, no. I completely understand the no, point no, you're no. making. Because there are people in comedy we know that are not that funny off stage, but we know how effective they are on stage. So it's just, it's however, whatever you, whatever pathway you're taking or however, however you've gone about this or whatever drew you to it, it doesn't matter as long as you're a, gr a good person who's good at your work, that's really all that matters. But don't you think it's going away fr from uh, the whole, I think comedy is becoming less, this might sound bitter, <laughs> maybe it is, but it's, it's not, a, it's just about storytelling and talking on stage now. Don't you think? Like, it's not about being a great joke writer or joke teller anymore. It's more about content than it's just being on stage and making people laugh, not being a great yeah, it's you know? the it's the uh, Largo Club Largo school. Right, it's of, it. I don't and, even and, think that. I disagree respectfully. I mean, there's some of that, but I'm it. thinking no. But <laughs> the guys who are getting the Netflix specials and it's awesome, great for everybody. But they're just people who talk for, and it's not the Largo guys I'm thinking of. Like, I'm not trying to be a hater, but I don't know. I mean, we would love for okay, you to be more of a that, hater. Was, who do you uh, hate it, and it, why? It, it was no. Beth Lapidus doing the Uncabaret, right. which was where guys like, uh, I don't sure. know. Dana would, Gould. Yes, would all go down. These are wonderful oh, word spinners, yeah. but don't come with punchlines, and it's better if you read it off a legal pad on a bench. Listen, uh, I, forgive me. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, mm -hmm. but then like maybe 10, 15 years ago, those guys all became... The, the headliners from from everywhere, like, yeah. uh, I don't know, Louis C.K., Zach yeah. Alphanakis, uh, Patton mm -hmm. Oswalt, like those, mm -hmm. the, the, the cream of the crop of those guys. Yes, the, mm -hmm. those lineups were a lot of people talking at a coffee shop without mm -hmm. jokes, you know? Right. But the, one, the prime ones out of there became the superstar comedians. But I think now it's turning into, the ones who are getting the exposure is a lot of like alpha, Bro, broy dudes, bro, broy. Oh, broy dudes. And it's okay. very yeah, like meathead kind of people. Like right. I did a drive-through stand-up show recently because they were in a pandemic. Oh, please tell us everything about that. I want to know what happened. Have you guys done these? Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, it's so, a gut-wrenching experience. So for me, it was gut-wrenching. I got the I don't know the analogy. I got the. Val because so and it's, it was produced as wonderfully as it possibly could be for the circumstances it really was uh tammy joe and nicole who run shows the comedy store did at the magic castle it was beautiful it was 85 cars there were people in them they get them little clappers so they're making clapper noises so Aww. when you tell a joke or say something like you hear that i didn't have that i had i had horns you're you're oh, only substantiation as a performer was a horn and it was never on time and it was just awful 
It was like a thousand clowns going. <laughs> I mean, that's like one awful. thing. That's one thing at a at, at a political rally. But I would think that would really interrupt the timing of a comedian attempting Ugh. to deftly deliver this material. Brutal. With a, and I, I found. So I got the validation, like I'm saying this as a joke, obviously, but like, oh, I have a reason to live. Like I got that love that I need yeah. from the clappers. <laughs> but my joke, because I'm a, more of a joke teller than a storyteller. Yeah. And I felt like this is not, I'm not accomplishing anything here. I'm making right. people, I'm doing the important thing that I never think about is I'm helping people for, forget about the, I'm unselfishly helping people forget <laughs> about their worries and have, have a night out during a scary time, which is so beautiful that we provide that. But selfishly, I was like, why am I doing this? I got to see some no. people I liked half of the people I saw. It's <laughs> an awful performance experience, let's face it. I didn't like it and it wasn't productive for me as an artist. No. I'm, not, I'm no. not developing material. Zoom comedy is more productive for me and I hate that as mm -hmm. much. But it's, mm -hmm. at least I can, if three people are laughing, oh, there might be a laugh joke there. But I mean, you, you can commend them for attempting it because I think that drive-in polit politics and drive-in music is probably great people get to leave their home especially back east where it's getting cold like really your options are your car or your house or a wind chill factor that's like you know could could induce death so it's getting really hard for people so if they could go in their car somewhere and see a thing and then come home and their home feels new again to them that that's awesome but it should be music i don't think comedy lends itself to that but we're i agree with you but we're wrong though i mean it's because everyone else loves it so oh, you really? know what I mean? okay so, I mean, the crowds love it. And, and outside of California, people are able to sit on their car and tailgate and sit outside their car and stuff. So, so what would be, well, I guess you just have to kind of like adjust your timing to like, a, instead of hold for applause, hold for honking, you know, hold for whatever people were doing at your show. You just have to not, not address it and pretend like everything's fine. Like you're bomb, like it's like you're performing at an industry showcase and there's agents and managers came to see you and there's a crowd, there's three people in the crowd. You have to act like you're on Johnny Carson. Like I did that, I did uh, th I've done three shows since March outside of my house. And one of them was the Laugh Factory. It was a no audience show. They paid us, I was, it was, I was gonna say no, honestly. Like they called up, said you wanted this Laugh Factory show for people in hospitals and stuff. I was like, I was just like, I'll be sad afterwards and I'll hate myself and I'll be mad. I, I love people in hospitals and love to them. <laughs> send, them my, send them my tape. They don't need to see me. But then, then they said, this is what a piece of trash I am. They're like, well, Earth, Earthquake and Craig Robinson and Tiffany Haddish are doing it tomorrow. Do you want to come do it too? I'm like, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm a legend. I agree. I'm, a, I'm up there with them. So I went and... I hated it, but there's no there's nobody in the crowd. It was almost it was worse than nobody, you guys, because as you know, there was producer people in the back, like doing the sound and stuff. So they laugh sometimes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's even worse than nobody, because then you're like, oh, I bombed because they didn't laugh. And but you just, I was like, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for the audience. You know what but, I'm talking. Uh, but I'm just telling you, Taylor, it's not that they didn't laugh or didn't think you were funny. It's that the moment you told that joke. They were focused on their job, which was their thoughts were elsewhere. So it's a very bad indicator of how funny you are. That's what I'm saying. It's, the, it's terrible. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So it was televised and then kids in hospitals got to see it. It's, it's a, it, was, it was really sweet. They they supported comedians during a scary time and, and, and they put it on. They streamed it on all the online for people around the world to watch. And the big selling point was hospitals in Israel. Hospitals in Israel, which, you know, we care about those ones. Of course, because they think that comedians in English are hilarious. They, that's just their thing. They like, speak English in <laughs> Mostly Israel. do. Mostly do. 
mostly to you wouldn't know you're not jewish you wouldn't know i am i am jewish i'm pretty jewish but uh, i know we did a jcc show yeah that's right that's where we've had most of our long talks about your your childhood and your yes and and where i met the guy from home alone three you did we've had some interesting uh shows with road trips involved but uh what i want to know like from you and fritz is like what's anything that comedians are able to do right now is it to hunker down and write? Is it to podcast? What is? What are the hidden blessings of this pandemic for you guys? I'll let what? you go because I don't know any. Oh, the, the opportunity to write. And, and the other thing is about Zoom comedy, even if you tank, you don't know, so it doesn't assault your self-esteem. You can fantasize that you're killing and just go <laughs> on to the next thing. You, you have no sense of how badly you're doing, but it's a very hard way to try new material. And it's hard, but I, I've I've uh, used the opportunity to do a lot of writing myself, and, and and appreciate it. The only thing that's good thing that's happened to me is my cousins. I told them I'm sad. I live by myself, which was the coolest thing to do as a single man living by yourself until the pandemic happened. And it's <laughs> like I'm so lonely. <laughs> but my cousins and their kids have this adorable puppy, and then they know I love him, so they let me. Oh, there you go. Like so oh, hi, Chase. Him. Hi, Chasey. Hi. He's named after Paw Patrol. Okay. I'm familiar with Paw Patrol, but <laughs> sure. he's, the, he's the police officer dog, which was, it was a little controversial a few <laughs> months ago, but I think he's back in. He, I, I was worried he was going to get canceled, but. Um, oh, yeah. That's, but, you You do have to worry about cancel culture when you, when you tweet, right? Have you ever accidentally tweeted something offensive? I'm talking about the dog getting canceled. I know. The dog tweets offensive things daily. <laughs> I know him. Have you? Oh yeah, haven't we all gone? You're better people than me, but you haven't Much. gone through your tweet. Every year you have to go through your, find out what you can't say anymore. Then you go through yeah. your tweets from 10 years ago. And there's always something, literally every year there's something where I'm like, Ugh, like something I said in 2011 that a year ago I was fine with. And then now I'm like, oh boy. So does that affect? Eventually all my tweets will be deleted. For sure. I, I mean, what is there left? I mean, it's, it's, as our awareness grows about how things can be offensive to certain, you always think that like, oh, there's no one who's actually Polynesian, so I can tell a Polynesian joke. Then you meet, and now you're working with a Polynesian guy who's like, I don't like that joke. You but know? that's never happened. Can we just really, you know? Like I don't the know people, any Polynesian people. No. The, I don't. They all moved to New Zealand not, a thousand years ago. <laughs> that's not what I meant. But like... <laughs> You admire Gaffigan, right? So what did you oh, think sure. about he exploded on Twitter and showed the other side of his personality? And many people were relieved and exhilarated by that. And some people were offended. How did you feel? I adored it. It, yeah. it, 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 it made it, him a human being the way I look at it. Well, I because it, it, I'm nobody, but it, it, him and The Rock speaking up. Yeah. Well, not good. They were not speak. This is like... We're, I, I imagine you guys feel the same way as me. Like, this is not politics. Human rights, science, I'm not, you know what I'm saying. Like, yes. uh, like th those aren't political points of view. Like, uh, racism, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, uh, em empathy, whatever. These are not political points of view. And for, I love that people, because I know people who are very successful, as you guys do, and it's hard for me not to judge them, but I... <laughs> try to tell myself not to, but like there's one guy I'm thinking of that I won't say who I admire so much. And he says, I don't speak out about politics because you lose half your audience. And I get that. That made sense a few years ago, but we're in a different world now. 
And as a Jew and as a human, I think who am I not to use my little voice to speak up for people different than me? Or you're going to do it in Hebrew because I really don't understand English. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I just, I, I love that these people who are, they could lose half their audience. It's not half the people who believe this stuff, you know, but I think it's important and it inspired me to speak out more, honestly. Because I worry about that too, honestly, because my fan base, I'm so grateful for them, but it's middle America, America's Got Talent fans. That's still the majority of my audience. So is there, has there been any kind of like oh, feedback? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Give I'm us Facebook. an example. My yeah, Facebook fan page is where all my hate is. If you guys are bored, anyone's bored, go to my Facebook fan page and look up around the election time. Anytime I posted, I'm, I'm the only trolling I did myself is I would write, please vote for people who believe in science and empathy. I didn't say vote for Biden. Um, That's a pretty radical off. statement, my friend. I'm not surprised that you pissed <laughs> off the whole country. People, right? People, I get racist stuff. I get uh, anti-Semitic stuff. Like people just, they're so, it's, it's really scary, but I think it's good that people are, the, the, uh, the analogy, I guess, is that clan members aren't wearing their hoods anymore. They're just proudly ignorant yes. and racist and yes. it's terrifying, but I think it's, I don't know. I don't know. And the way I'm at, I'm like, especially now, like I, I was staying off, off politics, especially. I really am not on a stage. I'm not a political comedian at all. I don't talk about politics, politics at all. Like, but uh, in real life, I'm very passionate about things. And uh, on social media, like every few months, I post about something that's important to me. And uh, where am I going with this? But now I'm at the. Let I, me ask you why you don't talk about politics. I don't talk about it because the shelf life is so short. It requires too much writing. Yeah, no, I'm lazy. Like, let's call you lazy, but I'm lazy. We're like, I hate writing a joke that's political and topical, then I can't do it anymore. And right. uh, uh, I don't know. I just don't. Maybe I don't know. Like my dream, I've had a lot of things I really wanted. Like I would have loved, I would have loved to have been on the Daily Show doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, but. I don't know. I really thought about it. It's just not funny to me, maybe. And I'll tell you, I think the clubs have dictated staying away from it because I've seen brilliant comics. And, you know, I, I love to watch a guy perform, even if I don't believe in his political bent. If it's a well-crafted joke and a funny observation, I just love it and I laugh at it. But I think the clubs, the, the audience reaction in clubs has been so negative to political jokes. You don't even have to do a punchline to a Trump joke in a club now. All you have to do is say his name or suggest that you're talking about him and you hear, whoa, and you immediately, <laughs> you know, you've been there. It's really, it's a volatile time. And I think that's made a lot of comedians who might otherwise be slightly more political stay completely away from it. Well, uh yeah, I mean, I used to, maybe I'm still stuck. I am in many ways. I need to reset my brain for my goals and stuff because the world has changed so much since I started 17 years ago, but especially now, like, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like when Twitter came out, I was like, what do I have to do now? I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I have so many questions for you guys, but uh, what I'm just rambling at you. What's my point? Um, I want to talk about the AGT oh, experience. Okay. <laughs> 
You know, because I'll tell you why. I, I, the, the props I give you, and again, your your personality show was so great. I, I think it's the times when you're interacting with a panel, and that makes me like you. It's not the prepared stuff that you've worked on for a long time. It's the way the audience reacts and how you respond to sometimes their innocuous questions. But I just have a firm... Uh, disagreement with competitions when it comes to stand-up comedy. It seems like an unnatural act. For me, being in your position and for you to do well was phenomenal, but it, it would be a gut-wrenching experience for me to be out there and be judged, not only against the, the panel, but against everybody else in the competition. I, I would not do it well. Was it hard? How, how did you feel about it? Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful to the show and the producers, and it changed my life. And I don't know where if I would have been where I am if it wasn't for that, you know, uh, because it was ten years of people not giving me opportunities, and then out of the blue, I got this opportunity. So I'm grateful that it exists, you know, and it's the platform. But uh, yeah, the competitions, judging art is gross. But it is what it is. The comedians, the artists who go on the show and do well are the ones who accept it is what it is. And the ones who go on like, I'm a comic. I'm not going to play. If you don't play the game, then you go home. Right, you, right, right, right. The right. ones who go on cynical and they don't adapt to it. You have to adapt. You're on a family show. It's not about being a great stand-up. It's what you said. It's about people liking you. It's a likability contest. Exactly. What, I, also, what I think, uh, Taylor was the perfect AGD contestant because... He took all of that time in between his acts because you don't really get to perform that often. It's not like American American Idol where you perform every week. You don't get to perform all that often. But he took every moment of of conversation with judges, every moment backstage, and he was armed and ready. And he had material, and he was he was ready for every moment so that people fell in love with Taylor. No, not just that's, that's not just, exactly what I'm saying. Not that's just Taylor's won, act. I think that's what wins over the audience. That was yeah. great. And he, 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 every hand that he was dealt, he played perfectly, including up to tell, tell Fritz the story of the finale, how they wanted you to do a uh, material that you had already done. Taylor, tell, tell Fritz how you handled that. Oh, wow. You have a good memory. Yeah, they have the, back, I don't know if they still do this, but back in my year, they had, uh, in the finale, they had performers had to repeat a performance they've already done before. And the producers, they're not, it's not, they're not evil, but they're not thinking about you, you know? They're just like, mm -hmm. all right, so the guy who sings a song about Cole, the country singer, will he'll, instead of acoustic, he'll have a whole band behind him, you know? And like the mm -hmm. opera singers will do the same song, but they have lasers and they have an <laughs> opera behind them or whatever, you know? And like, uh, they'll have a choir. And like, but they're like, for me, they're like, just tell the same jokes again. Like comedy doesn't, I was really like, I was overthinking it too much, but that helped me on the show. But I was like, oh, the crowd's already heard those jokes. They don't remember my jokes from the audition. You know, like, I don't know, but I was like, I can't repeat my jokes, that's crazy. Then they're like, tell jokes on the same topic. I'm like, I'm not gonna write a new act on the finale of America. <laughs> Let me just jot this down on a napkin. Yeah, like, here's another joke about camels. So I said, can I do a bit where, we acknowledge that I have to do a bit, like just do a kind of meta. Like we'll do a, the bit is I'm, I don't know what to do. Like, how do I repeat an act I've already done before? This is impossible. And I, they have those, they have like a 90 second package before you start performing. And I was like, I need you in the package to set up my performance. So like, you can't tell us what the producer, I'm like, just help me out. Like I had a fight with the producers politely, <laughs> like, let me 
help me, help me, help you, help you, help me. And then I was like, can I steal the choir from the opera? They're like, well, we don't know what order they're going. I'm like, I understand, but somebody's making the order. Can we find out who's making the order? So they, they Can I this borrow your choir? Because it probably wasn't going to work out because they wanted the choir, because they want the big acts to go at the end, like the, the singing titanic or whatever song like my heart will go on. they want the big finale the finale i'm like can you put me why can't i, I was, then i was fighting i'm like why can't the comedian be last that's racism why can't the comedian be the last thing and then they're like the, then i found out that the choirs are pre-recorded they go to like some f- fancy sound stage and pre-record like a lot of the bands on these shows not always but a lot of them are pre-recorded or they're actors. Yeah, they're pre-recorded and they're just actors playing the instruments or singing. For they're real. all holograms. No one's an actual human. Wow. For real. So the choir was pre-recorded and they just had actors on stage. And uh, they're, and so I talk about things you can't say anymore. The punchline in my joke, which I'm not embarrassed of, it just would, it would not have been, I probably wouldn't have written it in this today's age. And I, I probably, they probably would have not let me said it today. Not that it's illegal to say it, but you know, the standards of practices, there's, is it legal to say it? And then there is it also like FCC, then there's commercials. Like you can't say Toyota if there's a Honda commercial on at the same time. Then there's like, we then the, I've had the conversation with them. We don't think you should say it. We'll let you say it, but we don't suggest you say it because we think you'll be eliminated. Anyways, but my punchline was uh, black poodles love fat white bitches, which was a, <laughs> a very cute animal joke. It was a very play on words, cute joke. That was a play on the stereotype of uh, black men being attracted to large white women. That's a famous stereotype. I didn't come up with it. I'm a good person. So <laughs> I, the punchline required, I, should I say the joke so I seem like less of a yeah. bad person? So the joke, yeah. the joke, <laughs> the joke luck, was. But, but give it a try. <laughs> so I already told this joke on the show and it got a standing yeah. ovation and Mel B liked it and Nick Cannon liked it. I'm a good person. And it's, it's the, the biggest joke. That joke bought me a house. And so, so my, please don't feel like you have to laugh, but the joke was my friend, and my friend got, had a, has a Labradoodle. The dog's father's a four pound black poodle. Dog's mother, 60 pound white Labrador retriever. That's a huge size difference, but I guess it proves the stereotype that black poodles love fat white bitches. So it's the context and what it is. It's It's silly. It's whatever. So I'm a good person. So I, they, I repeat it, but they, they're like, we have to, we have to go to this studio where I, like the Beatles recorded. It's like one of those types of studios. And they, so they, after they recorded the Celine Dion song or whatever it was, they had to have them go black poodles. So I went to punchline where I pointed at the choir and they go black poodles love fat white bitches. <laughs> And then I, my favorite is watching the rehearsals after, so the next the next week, the day before this rehearsals, and I remember the choir on stage doing it, and the executive producer at NBC, so pissed. I couldn't hear him, but I just saw him like, what is this? Because <laughs> he was mad at the producers from AGT for approving it. He had a choir sing all his punchlines. But they, he- <laughs> they wouldn't have, they told me that they wouldn't have or had them record it just for me, but because they were already going to the studio. They right. Anyways, that was a long story. It's, but, you know, there, there are people. Wow. No, no, Taylor, you have to know there are people in that choir who tell this story nightly. You're not going to believe what this comedian <laughs> has record. 
Yeah, that's why was... the whole thing. I didn't even do it, and and I I feel like I'm melting into my seat. The whole right? thing makes me nervous because he really stuck up for himself. But it was it was a lot of pressure and a lot of tension. It was really really he was under a ton of pressure as he get for, as he got further and further along in the process. The pressure just kept building. Oh yeah yeah yeah. And How many sets did you end up having to do start to finish? I think nine. Wow. And then the craziest thing we did was. And it was funny because a lot of it is just the the acts aren't professional. It doesn't mean they're not brilliant. Like a lot of them are brilliant, but they're not professionals. And like the whole stick of the show is it's storyline backed up by talent, you know? Yeah. And uh, a lot of them haven't performed on stage before and stuff. And I was desperate for my career. Like I wasn't like, everyone's like, oh, this is fun. And like, this is not fun. This is my life. I need this so bad, you know? Oh, yeah. And and uh, like I was on st- in one of the rounds, I was elimination round they talk about like drama like they put me up against an 11 year old little country singer girl and they said one of you two is down to you two and like they're like why do you think you should go through and i always want to be like because she's a freaking child i need this i never had such negative feelings towards a child i felt so bad and then go back uh, to middle school and let me work on my career yeah for real and uh Oh, but in the finale, finale after the results are in, like the that final episode results show, they I got to be paired up with James Lipton, rest in peace, the legendary dude, and we spent the day writing a whole sketch to do together, like a fake interview basically that looked real, hard. but we pre-wrote it, and uh, I was fighting on who to use. They're like, it doesn't matter. The shows, it doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter who. We, they picked somebody for me already, and I said no because I didn't feel comfortable working with them. That was the only time I was a diva, really, is I said, I refuse to do that. I'm sorry. Because it was negative. I didn't want to be mean. It was like a roast. Yeah. roast. They wanted me to roast the judges. And I was like, I don't want to. Like, I've been, I presented myself as a silly, cute, whatever I <laughs> pretended to be. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. That was your appeal. And I didn't want to be mean, even though I love roast in many ways. But they're like, well, we already hired somebody. I'm like, well, I'm not going to walk on stage. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh yeah so they were like the hardest thing i did was that because i didn't have jokes you know how it is like we already have jokes written that we can mm-hmm. we have an arsenal already for the stand-up part but then i had to write a whole new thing and just try it for the first time at, at radio city music hall and oh it was, my god it was but really it was special. like you said all right i have my point of view i have my, who i am on stage i have my values i have wh- whatever i want to present to the world and now they're taking that raft of me and putting it in this wild river <laughs> rolling rapids and i have to figure out how to stay me and stay afloat and still stay me and you didn't have managers anyone pushing for you it was all you taylor that and you remain true to yourself throughout that process that's what i found just so incredible you're so nice and you were so supportive i remember talking to you in my hotel room in new york and you gave me really got great guidance and i appreciate it so much for real it was like he'd be like, "I can't hear you." Or the 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 dancing poodles are barking, <laughs> like that as they whittled it down. Like you know, there's just so many people in the show at the beginning, right? So yeah. talk about how it transformed your career, uh, Taylor. About how your life changed because you said it was a launch point for you. What what happens after that? Your well, bookings now- get increased. Your 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 cake increases. I mean, good things happen. Well, now my career is over. Okay, well, for that moment in time after the show, what happened? <laughs> well, before that, um, yeah, it was a cart- It was the cartoon of. I went from. I just didn't, I never had a day job. Like I had that going for me. I regret it honestly. Like I lived. I lived like a peasant because I'm an artist, and uh, I was lucky. Out of college, I was. 
since I was 17, I have I went in high school, I had a job, but like as an adult, I've never done something besides stand up. But I was struggling. The year before was the worst year of my career, except for this year. <laughs> and uh, I made like $10,000 in the whole year. And like, I was about to have to get a day job for the first time. Like poor me, but like I dropped out of college because Todd Glass told me to drop out of college. <laughs> and I listened to him, which you should never do. I love him, but uh, I remember I saw him recently. I'm like, you're such an idiot telling a 20 year old child to drop out of college. But he, he meant it because he thought I was good and wouldn't need a backup plan. But um it's not good when your favorite comedian tells you to do something because you believe them, you know? But it worked out, kind of, and... Uh, he was right. Thank you. I don't know, but I, I moved to New York. I did other life things that were great. But um, uh, I, I was going to have to get a job for the first time, and, like, what do you put in your resume? Last Comic Standing and, like, Craig Ferguson show, you know? Like, I literally, it was, like, I didn't know what to do, and uh, my mom lent me $2,000 on credit because I don't have, we don't have any money, and... Um, I auditioned for the show because some guy I went to high school with was a talent scout. Like their job is to go on YouTube and find people. And he asked me once and I said, no, thanks. Because I thought I was in line to be on Conan and Comedy Central Presents. And then those things didn't happen. Then I was like, hey, is that thing still available? <laughs> like if I had gotten Conan, like one spot on Conan, I probably would have been one of these guys who was on Conan once and no one cares, you know? And like, but my ego would have kept me from doing America's Got Talent because it's scary. Like it's I, a larger audience for one thing. It's a larger audience, but also the risk. I was so vulnerable. Like, if, if anyone's bored to watch my audition, I didn't have makeup. Like, this, you're on your own on the audition. I dressed weird. My haircut looked weird. I didn't. I had acne on my face. I didn't have makeup on. Like, because I was like, the more effort I put into this and I bomb, it's going to break my heart, you know? Uh, and I've seen those videos of people getting booed off stage. It's like white, oh. it's like deaf comedy jam, and it's really nasty. Like, they, tell, they encourage people... My seasons, they didn't. Since Simon Cowell's been back, it's been more negative because he's in charge of it, and that's his style, and that's what people want too. So, forget me. Some I guess. very talented middle school girls, and <laughs> you know they're coming for you. But, but they, I was, I couldn't deal with the crowd like booing me and like and Howie Mandel and Howard Stern saying you suck, you're bad at comedy. It would have crushed me. So that's oh, how desperate you. That's how desperate I was. I went on the show, and it, it went well. Anyways, it went great. Answer your question that. Uh, so I went from nothing to, I was on the road four months, non. so we did a two month tour right afterwards, like nonstop on a bus doing all, like the Greek theater and all these amazing places. And then, then I was on, I signed with these people who pushed me to go on the road nonstop. So I was gone five days a week for a year, basically. I went from nothing to too much, honestly. So that whole tornado, like all that cliche stuff is true. And uh, basically every cliche thing happens to me after that. But wow. I'm, I've, and I've had a bunch of almost things since then. Like I had a pilot for Spike TV with Tom Beers who did Deadliest Catch and Nice Road Truckers. And I had some really special people taking out like uh, my own Kirby Enthusiasm type show. And uh, Craig Ferguson was producing, producing a show with me for a year. Like I've had the classic almost, which means nothing stuff. And this year I was about to have the best year of my career. Fox Sports was gonna bring me on to be like a WWE goofy correspondent, like on Fox primetime on Saturday night doing like goofy wrestling. Like with Jimmy Kimmel or Cousin Sal and Frank Caliendo did for the yeah. NFL. I was going to do that for wrestling. I've always loved wrestling, but I was supposed to start WrestleMania for 80,000 people in Tampa at the, at the auditorium or whatever. But, that, oh. but it's still going to happen, right? I don't know. I mean, they fought, I, Fox fired their whole WWE division. So it's, it's very frustrating. So I was like, 
after all these almost things, it's just how this business goes, you know? I was like, I'm so grateful to still be the America's Got Talent guy. Like, it's been years, <laughs> you know? And they bring me back. I was on the show last year, so it's kept me alive. It pays my bills, and the show's still on. It's still the number one show, so it's not embarrassing, but I just don't want to be that guy who's 30 years from now, like, Hey, how's Heidi Klum? I'm like, okay, you know? No, 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 you won't be. You're, you're, no, you're, I, I you're think your person, you, you will succeed on everything we've talked about, which is oh, you, thanks. you are a presence over and above your jokes, which I think is the key to everything. The guy I use as an example, and don't be offended that I'm comparing uh -oh. you to this person. Uh oh. Uh, no, it, it's Arsenio Hall. If you would oh, listen to his stand up, if you would listen to his stand up or read it off the page, it would be moderately funny. But his personality was so strong, and that's what drove the show, the big smile. You couldn't help but be engaged by this guy, and it wasn't about his monologue jokes. It was it was about this character, this personality, and I think you have that in spades, and uh, I think Thank you, you. That means the world fun. to me. Thank you. I'm sorry to talk and over And you, you have good jokes. No, I thank jokes. I hear that. I kind of, I like, no, I hear you. Like, there's... Some I didn't like, mean to negate no, your jokes. That's not what I, I was I, saying. No, I like that. I like I like it. Thank you. No, you know, you know Dan Mintz? Have you ever seen Dan Mintz? I'm not sure. He's a stand-up. He's not as famous for a stand-up. He's the voice of Tina on Bob's Burgers, the cartoon. But his jokes are so funny that if you quote them, they're hysterical. He's just the dream joke writer, dude. But... Uh, I like... Like, Mitch Hedberg, I loved him because when I say his jokes, they're not funny. Honestly. Yeah. They're yeah. clever, but then when he says it with the delivery, with the yeah. character, with, like Arsenio is the same, I imagine. Like, yeah. it's almost hack-proof. People can't steal your, they can try to steal your jokes, but they're, they're not gonna work for other people. Well, that's what I'm saying. They can't yeah. steal your personality, and I think yeah. you have that, so. Thank you, Fritz. I like this yeah. guy. <laughs> well, what are you noticing during the pandemic about how comedy fans are finding comedy or how people are engaging online with you? Do people have more time to, be mean or do they have more time to you to be nice like what are you encountering i don't know like to be just honest i'm not enjoying this time in the world <laughs> i really like i want to answer your question i want to ask you guys a question though but mm -hmm. like i don't i don't know like there was it's i don't know because i'm not doing stand-up like i'm not I don't know how to answer that. There's, I think there's more negativity because there is more free time to answer that. Yeah, for sure. But it's not from comedy. It's from political posts or posts that are considered to be political because mm -hmm. I'm more pissed. I was pissed four years ago, but now it's like, you destroyed my career. Right. <laughs> you fucking this asshole. Is personal. This is that. personal. <laughs> but it's been personal the whole time, but now it's like, it's not just empathy anymore. It's, oh, me. now it's my turn to be fucked, you know? Sorry again, I'm passionate. No, I understand. Yeah, but like it's... and like and I struggle with my on stage stuff and my character of like I don't want to even cursing on stage. I like I don't want to talk about. It. But I'm like we're all humans and we're in the uh, trauma and like I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I I feel disingenuous. I have such a disgust with not being authentic right now. Mm -hmm. And it's for all my childhood stuff and everything. But it's like Trump really. I don't know. I, I don't want. I don't want people. I don't. I don't care if I lose money by someone being offended by. It. If you don't want to support me, then get out of here. You know. Like I'm trying to have more respect. Make sure I respect what I'm about. Like I joined Cameo. You know that Cameo thing, you right. guys. Right. Yeah. So I've, they have a roast section they can put you in, 
And like Gilbert Gottfried, I heard makes $200,000 off of this thing or more like a year. Oh, so my. there's a business and like, and he's perfect. He's the perfect level of famous because he's Gilbert Gottfried famous for everything, but including Aladdin. So he has the generations of people and like, so, Hey Gilbert, it's my brother's birthday. Roast him. Tell him he's this and that, which is great for him. But I got two of those and I'm like, I'm not doing this. I don't <laughs> want to do this. And I decline, even though I need money. I'm okay. This is a therapy session. I'm sorry. But, but no, yeah, the, what, I want to ask you, like, Fritz, like, uh, did you ever have, like, not a freak out, but, like, what's, like, a better word than that? Like, of, like, because here's how I feel. I signed up, I started stand-up in 2003, and that, at that time, it was the tail end, end of the, the what a career I wanted. My model, my path, my blueprint I started was... Tim Allen, Seinfeld, uh, Drew Carey, Ray Romano. Like you'd be really funny for 15 years, and then you get you get a sitcom, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And then people pair you pair you up with writers, and you do something, whatever. And that's like, but I, but then it slowly started ending. And I remember like 2006 and seven, people were like making YouTube videos. I'm like, what is all this? Stuff? I'm a stand up. My first manager, he's like, I only rep stand ups. And then I stopped working with him, and he's like, I don't rep stand ups anymore. I rep uh, I rep actors. And I was like, what? And like it now is now it's then it's Twitter and now it's like I feel like it's like a what's the analogy I'm bad at analogies they're all horrible but like it's like a book sink or swim really it's like well now you have to do Zoom shows and like everyone's doing they're doing these like illegal stand up shows which are not most of them I've heard about are not like social distance properly like I did one and I, I hate in the green room I was like this is not cool and like the crowd I felt gross doing it honestly and I was like. I don't know that. It's it t- not TikTok. Are you guys on TikTok? No. I'm just like, what do I have to do now? And like, it's awesome because it's like an even playing field. But like, I don't know. I feel a little lost right now in this whole thing. What do I do? <laughs> do you ever feel like that? Because the- it's happening to everybody. You'll come back because you still have what a lot of people don't have, which is you have a great joke writing, writing ability and you're fun to watch. And so you'll be fine. Thanks, buddy. I got this dog. This dog is- That's all you need. You got the dog. Take the dog in there with you. Well, I think, Taylor, (laughs) I think what's happening is that everybody, including you, has a lot of time to think and fret. You know, this is a Mm -hmm. time to fret. And so what I want you to do is every time you feel yourself fretting, that, oh, I don't know how to do TikTok or I'm not on this platform or I haven't, I said no to roasts on Cameo. Every time you feel yourself going down the, the threat path, put on the brakes and say, this is not permitted. Turn the car around, come back out and do some writing. Uh, call you, call call someone you love. Have a conversation with a, a friend from high school that you haven't spoken to who needs to hear from you because everyone's home. We're all home. So you could be doing something positive when you find yourself fretting, put on the brakes, turn the car around and come back out. You're not. Yeah, it's not you would getting be a you great any. character for your own sitcom. You should write yourself a couple of specials. Your talent isn't your, going anywhere, uh, no matter yeah. where technology goes. Thank your you. talent is not going anywhere. Even yep. if you asked it to, it won't leave you. It's like that dog. The dog's going to leave me tomorrow. <laughs> well, then it's unlike the dog. <laughs> no, listen to Fritz. He says wise things. No, I love it. No, it's just very, and this is not speaking from bitterness. I'm just sharing. It's interesting. Like, it's very, uh, this, I don't know how to say this. It comes off bad saying it, but what I'm told, I don't know. I don't want to say it, but like, I'll tell you, well, this is what producers and agents say to me. I didn't come up with this. I don't believe it. 
But like, I'm like, I want to sell. Here's I I've done that. Like, I have a show that I'm really proud of. I want to take out. They go, oh, you're a straight white guy. Sorry, no one wants that. I'm like, can we? What talk? a what a what a ridiculous freaking thing to say to somebody. If it's funny, it's funny. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Larry David's a straight white guy. Fuck you, man. Just just I, stop it. I love that, but that's what they say. That's literally. I know. Yeah, that, well, then just just, just say that just I'm mar- I'm going to succeed despite those shortcomings because there's even like at least a couple of straight white guys in Joe's new cabinet. So there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's really interesting because like I'm trying to be honest with myself because I'm like I recognize how ridiculously important it is like the representation and stuff. So sure. I'm like, maybe it's not my time, but then I'm like, I should, do I have to be homeless now? <laughs> like I should still Here, be here's allowed the thing. to. Here's Develop the thing a about limp. agents and managers. Develop a limp. Their yeah. relationship with Sorry, you, is that your dog, dog growling? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Hey, that dog was, is I awesome. Thought, I thought it was my stomach at first. <laughs> Chase. <laughs> Chase. The dog is like, they need to hire the straight white guy. <laughs> By the way, like, I'm I, saying it out loud because then you get people who are like, how dare you, diversity and all representation. I agree with it all. Yeah, no, I got you. There's a place for everyone. We're, we're just asking everyone to have a fair shot. It doesn't mean that straight white guys have to stop working for everyone to have a, no. a fair shot. We and just listen, want everyone the whole to have a- relationship between performers and uh, representation, agents and uh, managers, is a parasitic relationship. The, the, the really good managers and agents are guys that have a sense that the wave of your career is preparing to break. And before you get off your knees and up onto the surfboard to ride this wave, that's when they attach themselves to you. They don't really want to do the work. They just want to ride with you and bear the benefits of your talent and your ability to drive it forward. So who cares what they say to you? You should write spec scripts, write treatments for shows because you know your personality and your character better than anybody and somebody will buy it and then you'll have people falling out of their cars to come and represent you because they feel like you're going to be successful don't listen to those idiots i love it thank you uh, my, my agents are listening i don't think you're idiots I don't <laughs> <laughs> All right, no, I, that's great advice that i wish i got earlier on like it's it's the best advice to give I think the best advice is don't trust anybody. Don't listen to advice from anybody. But then the other best advice is representation. They're not coaches or captains. They're tools. Like you exactly. Say, I exactly. wish someone told me that because I never thought of that until a few years ago. Yeah, don't look for them to solve your problems. You, you drive forward, and they'll come along when they see money to be made. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's anyway, really, really good advice. Sorry, you're we very have to- talented, Taylor Williamson. So thank you, buddy. This is a good you, therapy uh, session, you guys. We're happy. We're just so happy. Uh, we love you, and we want you to do well. And I know that. This pandemic oh, is yeah. challenging for everyone. And I think even you just kind of like talking with us about some of your fears and some of your concerns is is therapy for other people who have the same or similar concerns about their career while everything's like, you know, we've pressed pause on life itself. And so Trump broke the world. He, he broke the planet and we're going to fix it. That's for sure. We're going to fix it. And then all of a sudden people are going to be starving to go out and see stand up. You won't believe it. And it's going to be amazing. So we did press pause. We're not only going to press play, we're going to press fast forward on your career, buddy, as soon as this thing is is through. You'll see. That's very sweet. For all, it really, the whole world is together thing is so is so cheesy, but true. But like, I have a buddy who is killing it. His job is producing live uh, concert uh, festival, oh. festivals. 
Oh. He was at last year was the best year of his career. Yeah. He's doing festivals around the world, and now he's like he was telling me he like asked his mother in law for money and to help pay rent because they have a kid and they have their bills to pay. And she's like, get a job. And he's like, I have a real. Job. I'm not some piece of trash. Like I have a real job, but it's like literally canceled for the next. But he thinks that the the festival business they think. Next year is going to be rough, but then the year after is going to be the biggest year ever for them. Like the back. only story, sure. that, that's a horrible story and it makes my heart hurt. But the only worst story I've ever heard is my next door neighbor who has three children under 10 and she operates a business out of her house, which is an event planning business. So not only is she watching her business completely evaporate, she has to be homeschool teacher for 10, for three kids under 10. And I'm just praying that I'm not home the day her head explodes because it's <laughs> going to be really ugly. It's just awful for friends like yours. Uh, um, it's terrible. It's just terrible. Well, I do see a light on the horizon. I, I, we've got a vaccine coming. We've got a new president coming. And I'm I sorry wouldn't... about Joe Biden, by the way. I know it's hard for you that he became president. <laughs> I, I'm going to be okay, Taylor. Uh, like, we, I, I, I'm, I'm wearing a lot of uh, Joe gear, and when it's fun, because when you walk around in it, people are like happy to see you, and they're like, "Oh, they like my face." No, they like my hat. <laughs> Wait, real quick, Weezy, you're a big deal. You know that, right? For sure. Yeah. So like <laughs> you've been you've been pro Joe for the longest of anyone. Yeah. You were in it from not, launch. Like like level ten. I was <laughs> trying to tell you, bud. Never it's wavered. It's gotta be. Like, the, I was like Taylor. It's gotta be the straight white guy. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't think this is it. Like now I'm, I'm delighted, but I wasn't. You know, like this was he wasn't the one. No, that I was I, really. Scared. So are you gonna believe me? What I'm telling but, you about your career. Wait, hold on, Fritz, what I did was, you say? Yeah. I was really scared. I was like you. I, I thought, I don't know, because this has all become the power of personality, and yeah. I wasn't sure the contrast between Trump's carnival barker attitude and, and Joe's thoughtful, sort of studied, hesitant you know, presentation. I thought, I don't know, man. America's too easily bullshitted. I don't know yeah. if he's going to make it, but I'm Careful. so very Confidence? Thankful. No. Competence? Mm, I don't see it catching on. <laughs> but Weezy, you yeah. got it. He owes you. He does. I was so, on board. There's got to be something with like Joe King comedy tour or something like the Joe Joe King. <laughs> Three of all us right. go on the road. We mean all right. You, me, and Joe. We just go for no, it. No, you, me, and Fritz. <laughs> oh, you, me, and Fritz. Yes. But Joe doesn't. He's busy. But like for Joe yeah. Joe Biden presents the Joe King tour. Comedy. Oh, I see. Yes, exactly. We're his. Surrogates, his comedy surrogates. Like Kevin Hart does that. He's got like some guys that like his like Kevin Hart presents, but he's not gonna be there, you know. Oh, I see. I see. Joe Biden's the new Kevin Hart. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I see that happening. <laughs> oh lord. All right, let's make that. Let's make that our. It's feature. on you. I'm told you. All right, guys. No, no those are great ideas. Guys. Yeah, Me we too. gotta go. I'm gonna do the closing credits, Taylor. You'll enjoy these. These are. They, I love you guys. Thank you for I having love me. You. Nice these, to talk to you. These are pre-written. Great talking to you, Taylor. Uh, we would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. I want to thank our very special guest, Taylor Williamson, for joining us. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Damanda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. 
I'm Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.